The following broadcast has been approved for Elite Hornets fans. What a block by Cody Zeller. Walker down the lane, drive, shoots, scores! Game over! Bringing back the buzz is only the beginning. We will not go quietly into the night. It's Hornets talk for the hardcore fan. It's Hive Talk Live. Welcome in, Hornets fans. You are listening to Hive Talk Live Thursdays, brought to you by our good friends at ESPN 7.30 a.m. right here on atthehive.com. It's Hornets Talk for the hardcore fan. We are live in the Gittimer.com studios in BEAU, beautiful uptown Charlotte. I'm Doug Branson, and I'm joined via the Hive Talk Live hotline by Justin Thomas. He covers the Hornets for ESPN 7.30. Justin, how are you on this beautiful Thursday? You know, I don't know if it's because I've been um, around the Hornets too much, but I've uh, been bitten by the injury bug. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm si- I am sidelined today. So I don't really, I don't really know, you know, what's going on. But uh, for the most part, I am making it. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I am making it. I'm glad. I'm glad that you decided to play hurt. You don't have bed bugs, do you? You are. You aren't stricken with the the Kyrie Irving disease. You know, um, it was no bed bug. I would say it's just a, a matter of. Uh, you know, playing so hard and putting in so much effort that you know, I just wore down one of my, um, me and my white foot. But you know, I had the medical team look at it, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll be ready to go pretty soon. We have a, an amazing medical staff here at Hive Talk Live, and and foot injuries. You, listen, you can't play around with foot injuries. I don't care if you're a big man or if you're you know a point guard. You just you cannot mess around with the foot injuries. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing well, and I'm glad that you're playing hurt. Hey, you can listen to us live every Tuesday and Thursday at 6 o'clock p.m. right here on HiveTalkLive.com. Also, check us out on Sundays, 8.30 a.m. on Fox 46. That's Fox 46 on your local dial. You can also, if you're out of town, you can check us out on their live stream at Fox46Charlotte.com. Sundays, 8.30 a.m. Hive Talk Live on Good Day, excuse me, Good Day Charlotte. And with that, we say, let's swarm Charlotte. We began this recap a little, and we're trying something new, Justin. I don't know if you got a chance to listen, but we're trying to do a little morning dose of Hornets talk. We don't know what we're calling it yet. We're kind of experimenting, uh, but we're, we're trying to get something out every morning uh, to, to hit your, your, your podcast list, 10 minutes or less, trying something different. And we did a, a Cleveland recap, but we want to talk more in-depth about it here with Justin it seems like the big issues for the Hornets in the loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers in Cleveland seem like turnovers the biggest issue. What were you seeing in this game, Justin? You know, um, going into the game, um, Charles has played well against Cleveland, but the difference is those two games uh, were inside of time when it came arena. So I was really interested. You know, they played and been on a five-game winning streak. So I'm like, you know, this is going to be a good test. You know, the Cavs uh, lost, I believe, like two nights before so you knew Cleveland was going to come out motivated. You knew Charlotte was looking forward to, you know, trying to let people know. You know, they were for real. And, you know, they, they win the first quarter, 24-23, but I would say those last mm, two to three minutes, they didn't they didn't close out the, the first quarter well. So I was like, ah, they, they were leading, but it wasn't great. I, I believe they were up like five or six, and then Cleveland ended up cutting it to one. So I was like, okay, you know, well, let's see how, how the bench fares and, you know, how things are going to go. And, that, yeah, the second quarter. Oh, the second quarter was a struggle. 
it was rough. That lackadaisical kind of end of the first quarter made its way into the second quarter, and when it made its way into the second quarter, ah, you know, with turnovers and it it got out of hand pretty early. And next thing you know, they lost that quarter forty to twenty eight, and you know, the rest is history. But well, yeah, I think um, I think they they lost that quarter big, and then they spent the rest of the game. And I thought they did a great job of fighting, of keeping the energy level up. It was just those sloppy turnovers and, and needless turnovers that that immediately turned into to Cleveland points. And I thought also they did a great job of, again, and we talked about this on Tuesday, and thank you, Justin, for grabbing that sound at practice, about keying in on Kevin Love and stopping what he brings to the Cavaliers because when when Kevin Love plays well for the Cavs, the Cavs seem to get, get an automatic victory. And, and, and of the three guys, Kevin Love, LeBron, and Kyrie, I think the Hornets were most set up to stop Kevin Love. And I... Justin, you can give your thoughts on this as well. I think that when you play a team with as much talent as Cleveland has, or you play any team that has a big three, you essentially have to go in and try to stop one guy, hope that a second guy has a bad night, and then the, and let the third guy do what he's going to do. Because you can't, there's just no way to stop all three. You've got to focus in on one guy, hope one guy has a bad night, and hope the third guy you know, doesn't score 50 or 60. And so I felt like they keyed in on love, and LeBron got everything that LeBron wanted to get. And unfortunately, Kyrie, because of those turnovers, got into a rhythm early in that second quarter and then started knocking down shots in the second half, and and that was really all she wrote. Kyrie really got whatever he wanted in that game. The defense struggled to to keep pace. And, and you know, you knew there was reason for concern when J.R. Smith comes out and he's hitting and he's hitting shots. Well listen, yeah, you can't you can't let the auxiliary now whether it be J.R. Smith or Richard Jefferson on teams like that, you really have to make the big three beat you and not and not allow the other guys to to pile on. And you know like you would you would live with, you know, LeBron scored twenty three, Kyrie scored twenty three and eight from Kevin Love. Like you think, okay, we'll definitely have a chance to win, but when you give ten and five fifteen and you give J.R. Smith 16, that's, that's too much. Like, Charlotte is a good basketball team, but they don't have enough firepower to compete with a team like Cleveland. And when you let two of their three best players go for 23, and then you let, you know, the usual suspects, J.R. Smith and, and Shannon Fry come in, you know, you're, you're not going to win. And it, it didn't help, you know, when they just... Like, there was a time, I, I believe it was the first quarter, um, Kimball Walker had the ball, and... And Kyrie like just made it like slapped at it and it knocked it out and went up for a layup. I was like, you know, well, like it might be a long night, and, and it was a football club. Well, the the quintessential possession that I think illustrates the point that we're talking about. They uh, they got Marvin uh, to front. Kevin Love and they did a great job. Uh, LeBron drove and tried to dish off to Kevin Love and it wasn't there. And he, you know, Kevin Love shot the ball across to. I believe Della Vadova, who then swung it to J.R. Smith, and J.R. Smith took one dribble, two dribble, and then f- fell away and knocked down what I thought was a tough shot. And yeah. you know, ultimately, you know, Smith was just having one of those nights. Della Vadova was hitting threes. Channing Fry was hitting threes. And you know, it's, it's Cleveland is the number one team in the East for a reason. So you know, the Hornets had to come out there with their best defensive game, their best energy game and their best focus game, 
And they, re- I think they really only got one out of those three. <laughs> the energy was there, focus defense, just not there for the Hornets. So uh, they do lose that game. And uh, I, I want to talk about Al Jefferson because I really haven't gotten a chance to get your thoughts on his return yet, what you're seeing out of him. I also want to talk about Courtney Lee here in a moment. Uh, but you, first, Justin, from what you've seen from Al Jefferson off the bench, do you think that he's doing enough to say, hey, I, I deserve you know to get back into this starting rotation? He's, um, you know, three games. He hasn't been bad. He's had a six-point game, a 12-point game, an 18-point game. For the most part, for a guy that's just coming back and haven't played, you know, in a, in a long time, you know, playing around 22, 23 minutes, uh, I, I think he's doing well. Um, and you know what? why I, I don't believe you insert him back into the starting lineup, unless, unless you know, Clifford comes across something that he, like, he really needs to start, you know, you know, picking up the option that Cody Zeller, unless you sign a free agent, you know, Cody Zeller is, is going to be the center that you're, you're going to run with. And I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a bad thing. Um, I would say, right. I, I, I could, I might be able to, I might mess up the timeline a bit, but I remember it was, um, Al had got hurt, and I think he was just coming back. And this was, I would say, a month and a half ago. And before, you know, before he even played a game, he was like, you know, I'm just looking to contribute, you know, whether that's, you know, coming off the bench or starting. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, you know, they had, if Clifford and Al had a talking and said, you know, we're going to think about, you know, bringing you off the bench when you come back. But I think it's going to be a really good thing because I think if they, you know, five, six games in, you know, Al gets back to averaging about 15, 16, and 8. Those are good numbers for a big guy. If you can pair, if you can bring him off the bench with a bench that has played well this season, I think that can be extremely strong. I feel like if you bring Lynn, Lamb, Kaminsky, and Jefferson off the bench, I think that can be a really good bench because at the beginning of the season, when Al was starting, that bench was good. Like, that's one, you could argue that was the best bench in the league. Um, so I feel like, you know, it's not it's not all bad. Like, I'm pretty sure I want to start, but, you know, I feel like he knew this was coming, and I think it could it could be a blessing to Scott. Al might want to start, but I think it could add more versatility to his game going in the offseason to show that, hey, I don't have to start to be a side contributor. I could come up to bench and still produce. Yeah, it's interesting. So they brought two bigs off the bench, Frank Kaminsky and Al Jefferson, and I don't think their games could be really any more different at this point. Al Jefferson scoring 12 points in that game, 5 of 9 shooting, very efficient, and we've seen that over the three games since his return, that you know his shooting has been efficient. He's getting the ball in, in deep post possession, but he he definitely is looking for a certain type of shot, and, and it definitely slows down the offense. I, I, there was a tweet by Nate Duncan who covers the NBA for basketball insiders he also has a a great podcast the dunked on podcast also here on blog talk radio and and he tweeted during this game uh, al jefferson has not really helped the hornets offense so far not a great pick and roll guy ball sticking as they try to enter the post and yeah i initially looked at that tweet and i thought man you know i mean al jefferson's playing so efficiently he's knocking down you know good looks how could that not how could that efficient offense not be good for the hornets but when you think about what the hornets have been trying to build in terms of a, a three point shooting team a fast paced or a faster paced team not a not a fast paced team this team is still not really getting up and down the floor 
But anyway, so I, I took a look at the on-off stats for just the three games. So I'm going to put the big asterisks here next to this, Justin. This is a small sample size. But um, when Jefferson was on the bench these past three games, so 75 minutes versus 69 minutes on the court for Jefferson, when he's on the bench, the defensive rating is 102. When he's on the court, it jumps to 107. And the net rating goes from positive eight when he's on the bench to negative nine when he's on the court. The three-point attempts are down, like way down. The pace goes way down. True shooting, effective field goal percentage, all down. And even even the rebounding percentage goes down. And that's, I think, one area where you would think that Al Jefferson would uh, contribute in a major way is just the addition of rebounding, which we've seen drop off since MKG left. And so when I look at these stats, again, I just want to say small sample size, but I think it's something to keep an eye on. He, uh, Jefferson, I think, uh, you know, is is definitely having an impact on the offense, and I think it's fair to question whether that impact moving forward will be positive or negative in the context of what Charlotte is trying to build, which is a, a three-point ball movement-centric offense. Can Jefferson adapt to that? No, you, you numbers guys. Numbers guys. Listen, don't you go Char- don't go Chuck on me. Don't go Charles Barkley you on know, me. If I had a good Charles Barkley impersonation, you know, I'd reach I would reach into the bag and grab Don't do it. Don't do now, it. I, now, granted, we all know Al can't defend uh he probably couldn't defend us on a great day. Um and, and yes, you know, he does slow the pace down. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and and, and defend Al. You know, okay. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to do what I can. I'm not attack. By the way, I'm, you can defend Al. That's fair. But I just want to. I'm not attacking Al. Okay, understand. You know, you just you just stating valid valid. Points. I'm just you asking know, I, questions. I, I can't get mad at you. I can't get mad. Well, at Well, that's you, man. you know that's why we do this podcast. It's all about love. You baby. know, so hey, that's that's all we're trying to spread positive vibes. So. <laughs> Granted, Kanye. granted, we know, you know, you know it. So we know Al can't really defend, and he's on the he's on the slow, um, the pace down. And I like Al because we all know to actually enjoy a one and four out, you need a legitimate threat in the post. Like I love, well, excuse me, that's a strong word. I like Cody Zeller's game, um, and there's times you try to run it, and you know you you want. Cody to knock down a, a five to nine footer, and you know he can't do that. And the difference is, Clifford would always say this: you know, when we have Al back, we have a low post presence, and we have cuts. There was an example last night, and um, and it was it was slower. Like all your points are right. You know, they they, they move the ball around, and he gets to Al, and he gets the ball, and he he's starting to go to work. And granted, he I think he gets I think he gets tunnel vision sometimes. I think he gets he gets posi- and he and he got a matchup. He was hungry when he got up on Mozgov. I mean, he was holding Mozgov. He wanted very. he wanted that matchup, and and I just think there's a little bit of tunnel vision going on sometimes. There are other times where he where he works well with the pass and and does some things that are very nice. Uh, but I want to I want to touch on because we know. And Spencer Percy, uh, um, wonderful friend of the show, former host, uh, tweeting us uh, saying that Al Jefferson will always be a pick-and-roll liability. Offenses will attack and repeat. Clifford has a tough time, uh, a tough job managing his minutes, finding him spots to play in. 
we know the pick and roll defense, or or we see that constantly. He, he struggles against you know trying to guard, especially when the ball handler keeps it and penetrates. He struggles to defend that. But what about pick and roll mm-hmm. offense? I saw some when he was trying to work with both Kimba and Lynn. Very poor screen setting, and and, and you you can't run multiple. You struggle to run multiple pick and rolls with him because. Uh, it's. I don't think it's a priority for him, and I don't think that uh, he has the the stamina to you know uh, pick and roll, pick and roll, pick and roll. Uh, so you can't really build a rhythm. So I just wonder if even the pick and roll offense that the Hornets are trying to execute, and again to facilitate ball movement, if that is hurt by Al Jefferson on the floor, being on the floor. Yeah, I, I definitely would say that to a degree. Um, because if you could, like say you know you set that you set that pick you know at the three point line, um, you know nobody's really they're not too concerned. Like you know if Al wants to shoot that fifteen footer, you know you I mean nine times out of ten I believe you you let him shoot that. You know you say hey, he's far, he's too far from the basket that's not his game. Um, so I I can definitely say that um, that is definitely a liability because because it it, it makes Kimba's job tougher because you know like, we, like you know the pick and roll what makes it great is is when guys are good to run it it keeps you honest but if there's a weakness in your pick and roll it's not as strong so guys don't have to be honest mm. and and you really put a lot of pressure on your point guard to you know make the wrong decision and then I mean the right decision and then you you kind of get to a spot where you feel like you're playing you know four on three but. The one good thing Al does, because the, the pick really isn't going to work for him, Mike. We know that's just not going to work. But when he get when he gets it down low, back back to the Cleveland play, when he's getting double teamed and is winding down the shot clock, what does he do? He sees he catches a Jeremy Lin running, cutting down the lane. He drops it off. Granted, Lin misses it, but but that is a positive he's bringing because let's say let's say Al shoots forty eight percent. He takes like 10, 11 shots. So he gets into a group early. When that double team comes, he can recognize it and get the ball out. Because one thing I noticed, um, what Clipper said, and, mm-hmm. and I, I'm, allu- I'm assuming this is um, alluding to pace, you're saying that, you know, we, we have to get him the ball quicker. Yeah. Because we know, like, if we get it to him late, you know, he might either hold it or, or make a bad shot or, or might not even swing out, probably to that television that you were speaking of. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if you get it to him early, he can. They want to get the ball to him early and deep. So I feel like if you can get the ball to him early, he can either try to go to work. If he don't have it, kick it back out, get the pass, and keep the tempo going. Well, listen, and if he can get it down there deep enough, he can turn around and put it to the basket. Listen, he was doing everything he could to call for the ball. He was using every communication method. He was texting. He was Snapchatting Kimba. He everything. was he was dialing one eight hundred collect. I mean, this dude was calling for the ball. And I think when that starts to happen, and and the offense doesn't recognize it immediately. The defense has plenty of time to adjust. And I'll say this for Cleveland, and I think this goes for – this really has playoff implications. I think when you start to face stronger teams, they're not always going to opt to make that double team. And then mm-hmm. I think that's what makes it tougher to pass for Al Jefferson is if he doesn't see that double team coming, then he's got to look for some kind of other option – and it's it's it didn't happen in that Cleveland game, and that's what makes this so interesting, I think, and what makes this such a conundrum not only for me when I look at the stats, but certainly for the coaching staff, is that you look at you look at the raw numbers and you go, okay, five of nine shooting from the field, twenty one minutes, twelve points, six rebounds off the bench. 
That's good. That's great. I mean, you love that kind of efficiency from any player, whether it be Jefferson or, or, or anyone. But then you start to examine what does his brand of offense, what does that do? What is the, what is the ripple effect? What is the domino effect on all of the different players on the court? And I think when you, and it's something to keep an eye on. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying, you know, lessen Jefferson's role even more. I, you know, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying it's something to keep an eye on. And it's something that I think you have to consider when you have to ultimately make that decision about, you know, whether to expand Jefferson's role or find some different sets of guys to play him with on the bench. So I think it'll be, yeah, go ahead. You know, um, I can actually, I guess, give you something that would strengthen your argument is, um, he has to, and even when he was healthy, one thing I did notice is he has to be, he has to get better in his decision-making. Like, I've been really critical of Kemba at times for just getting the ball and dancing, like not making a move and going or, or doing something. Sometimes Al gets the ball, and, and sometimes he'll just sit down there and, and try to go to work, and when you realize you don't have it, you have to kick it out. Like, because we all know they want to play with tempo. Like, granted, it's going to slow down with the bigger guy on the floor. But when you get the ball and you go to your one move or you go to option B and you don't have it, you got to kick it out. And there have been times earlier in the season when he was healthy. He would get it down low, and he didn't have to think, okay, kick it back out. Let, let's try yeah. to figure something out. We have 10, 11 seconds left. But instead of that, he would sit up there. Then he'd throw up a bad shot or something like that. And then that's when you say, okay, come on, my man. Like, you, you have to make better decisions. So I do, I do think... Um, he can still be very effective for this team, whether it's starting or coming off the bench. But I, I feel like it has to be quick. Like his decision, like when he gets it in the post, and if that double team is coming, he has to get rid of it. If he gets it down low, he goes to his first move, it doesn't work, and his second move doesn't work, get rid of it. And then you can keep the ball swinging. And, and Sonic, have a decent tempo rather than being just super slow. Going back to Twitter, uh, someone uh, responding to our treat, what do you like or dislike about Big Al's play since he returned? Uh, Trey responding saying, that's why uh, I like him off the bench uh, because of his PNR pick and roll liability on defense. He's less liable against weaker offensive opponents. The problem with that line of thinking, I think, is that um, teams like Cleveland, as smart teams or teams that have a lot of talent, I should say, not smart or dumb, but just have a lot of talent, have the ability to stagger their lineups. And if they have that ability... They're definitely going to stagger the lineup in a way that keys in on that pick and roll liability. Like you can get away with it, I think, against Utah, but you can't get away with it against Cleveland. And 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 all of this, the only reason we're really talking about this is that we're we're looking towards the playoffs. I mean, this is a we're going to hear a, a clip from uh, Adi Joseph's spot on the Pulse uh, later in the show, and and he he seems to think that the Hornets are poised to make a playoff, not only a, a playoff appearance, but possibly a playoff push. And I think that these are the kind of things that you have to start thinking about, considering, wondering about, being concerned about when you talk about, okay, this rotation needs to go down from you know 10 to maybe 9 to 8. I mean, these are the kind of things that I'm sure will be considered as we move late into the season. And, and, and you know, rotations and lineups – that happen in late February and early March can go straight out the window come come May or or the beginning of the playoffs. So it, it'll be interesting to watch. We'll continue to discuss it. We'll continue to monitor it because, as I said, three games, that's a small sample size. 
Very small. Very, uh, yeah, as my my anti-numbers friend will contest. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> oh man, you don't like calculators, huh? You're just, you're just anti-numbers. You hated Sesame Street as a kid. You're just hey, anti- you know- you're, you're, you're uh-huh. Sesame, you only watch Sesame Street episodes that were brought to you by the, the letters, right? Oh, no. I'm, I'm going to tell you when it got bad. You know, when you get to like 11 or 12 grade and they want you to get on like the T, TI-83s, that's when it went all downhill. Like once that day came, Listen, you got to like, get the oh, games gosh. on there, right? You got to like get Mario on just, there. That's I how you... Do... I am so mm. not technology savvy. It's unreal. All right. You're calling. Exactly. By the way, he's calling in from a rotary rotary phone. So that's yeah. You're oh right. no, hey, iPhone baby, iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're talking about decision making uh, from the coaching staff, and uh, a, a very interesting interview happened uh, on the uh, Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. And I, I'm a fan of most of these Vertical Podcasts. I haven't listened to the one with JJ Reddick, but. I like the one with Woj. Uh, I think there are occasionally really interesting interviews. I love the one that he did with Brett Brown and Chris Mannix, same way, brings on great guests and, and really gets to kind of the heart of, of, of some issues. And, and when he interviews a guy like Steve Clifford, which he did the other day, he doesn't necessarily ask about the Hornets, but the questions that he asks and the, the answers that Coach Clifford gave during this interview, I think, provide some insights into uh, who Clifford is as an NBA coach and what he thinks makes a successful NBA coach. And and this interview, Justin, came on the heels of something that I caught uh, during the one of the practice interviews that that you sent in. And I just want to I want to roll that clip first, and then we can talk about some of the things that Steve Clifford said in the the Chris Mannix interview. So this was Steve Clifford uh, after practice. And he, he's talking about uh, the right approach and, and how to handle how he thinks teams, coaches should handle an 82-game season. You know, look, when you play 82 games, uh, you know, it's not uh, – there's no fiery speeches. You know what I mean? You either have guys who uh, believe or understand that you got to have the right approach to keep improving or they don't. If you have the right kind of guys, you have a chance. And if you don't, it's not going to happen. All right, Justin. So, again, that that phrase, right approach, we've heard that from from Coach Clifford a lot. And and he makes a great point here. 82 games, that's a lot of games. And you, you don't have a lot of practice time in between those games. I love the phrase that he dropped there. There aren't a lot of fiery speeches. This isn't a movie. There's no halftime you know, let, let's uh, let's go get them. Let's uh, you know, fiery speech from the head coach. No, it's about assembling guys and getting them in the right attitude and the right mind frame in the off season and training camp and in preseason, and then hoping you have guys who want to get better throughout the season. But if you don't have those guys, there's really no because these guys make a lot of money, Justin. I mean, these guys are adults. And, and there's not much in the way that you can do to sit them down and say, hey, buck up there, kid. Like, we got to go out and get them. It's not, this isn't college. This isn't high school. You know what I'm saying? And I, I think that's, it's such an interesting take because I think, you know, we watch sports movies and uh, I, I think we have this idea of coaches going in and fire and we see these, you know, cutaways to college basketball games where the coach goes in and, you know, throws a clipboard and, 
fires the team up. That's just not happening in professional sports, or at least in the NBA. And I think that's incredibly interesting and, a, and an insight into Clifford's understanding of how the NBA game is different from any level of any other level of basketball. Clifford is. Uh, I feel like every time I listen to him. My basketball insight grows, and this might have this. I've probably said that at least ten times, at least ten times. I feel like what what makes him special is he's aware. I think awareness in, in any situation, especially coaching, is is very very important. Um, his his readiness and, and preparation is, is top notch, and he, and he has a little bit of personality. Like he's not. Like he's an intense coach, I would say, like um, along the lines of like a, a Greg Popovich or a Tom Thibodeau. But the little difference is he, is he has a little bit of personality. He's he's mm-hmm. aware that because some because some coaches don't know. For example, um, Mike Mike Dunlap, the Hornets won. What they win that year? Twenty one games, I believe, in the one year he was there. And I remember in his opening press conference, he was like, you know, we're gonna come out and we're really gonna get after it. And you know we're going to try to you know press three four um, you know three quarters of the court every night. And you're like, like, huh? Like, it's impossible to do that for 82 games. It's it's impossible. And there are coaches that aren't aware of certain things like that. I, I and thought, Clifford knows that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. And I think. Uh, going to this Chris Mannix interview, if you haven't listened to it, I'm not going to do it justice here. Don't have enough time, so definitely go check out uh, the Vertical Podcast. It's it's the latest episode from the Chris Mannix version of the Vertical Podcast. Don't get me started on the Vertical's branding on podcast. I'm I'm not a big fan. The podcast are great, the mm-hmm. branding not so great. Anyway, no. um, but but I think Clifford disputes this idea that a head coach has to go and gain the respect of his players. I I think just from what I listened to in this interview, it seems like Clifford is more of the philosophy that you can't go in and these guys that make, you know, millions of more dollars than you. And they're they're Again, they are adult adults who have been playing basketball at the highest level for years and years and years. You can't go in and and impress them and get gain their respect. But what you can do is form relationships with them that make them comfortable that you're somebody who can make them better if they have the right attitude. And if you, and he says it in this interview, he says, I'm not going to go to Jefferson and discuss pick and roll defense in the locker room. I'm going to bring film. I'm going to bring numbers. I'm going to bring data to show him you know, because there's no like this idea that a coach could just walk into a locker room and say, "All right, listen, we got to talk about your pick and roll performance in this last game. It just it was crap, and you got to get better." Like that's not going to work. That's not going to be successful. And, and I think it's just an interesting. It was such an interesting insight into what I've always found to be an interesting topic, which is NBA coaches versus college coaching in college. It's all about the head coach controlling everything. They control the game plan. They control the sets. They control the recruiting. I mean, they control what players are brought into the organization. But in the NBA, it's about learning and accepting how little control you have. And that ultimately, you just have to put your pieces in the best possible positions and and, and hope Again, these these buzzwords, right approach, energy, focus, 
that they have those things and and embrace and, and, and find creative ways to inspire better play. And I think that if you're basing you know, this season on those tenants, then, then Steve Clifford has done an excellent job. I, I agree because a lot of people are under this, I'm under this mindset or, or belief that in order to be a good coach or to be able to coach at a high level, that you have had to be a, a really good player. Like, or are you like just something that you have to be a good basketball player? And I, and I disagree with that. Um, I just feel like guys, like, I don't think coaches care, to be honest, if it's a, uh, if it's a girl or if it's a guy, if you were good or if you, if you weren't, if you didn't even play, like if you know the game, that's what they want because, you, you, like you just go back to said that the guys care about winning. Like I'll, I'll never forget the day Cliff, uh, man, now you know Clifford has signed an extension. And, you know we're practicing it, they're going through their media availability, and you know all the guys had something nice to say. Of course, like you know nobody's going to come out and say something bad when a coach gets an extension. Mm-hmm. But Kimba Walker gets up there, and and Kimba. He's he's a very quiet. He's a very soft spoken guy. Like you really don't get a lot out of Kimba, um, but you could really tell that he was thoroughly excited. And he was telling the story that you know when he was coming in over the summer and putting in his hours and countless amount of work, he was like Clifford w- with the biggest smile on his face. That Clifford was being there with his, with his slippers, no socks, watching film. Like that's just what you know. That's just what he does. Like Clifford, like his. He, he, there's, there's nothing more to him. He's a, he's a basketball guy. Like basketball is his life, and the team understands that. And when you have, when you see that from your coach, that if I'm going in over the summer and I'm coming in here and I'm, I'm putting in work at, you know, eleven or twelve o'clock on a week, on a weekday or a weekend night, and my coach is in here watching film during the off season, also trying to, you know, fine tune his game as a coach and become better. You know, the respect is going to go through the roof, and guys want to play for a coach like that. Yeah, and and I think you know this season we've seen so many coaches already uh, get canned, get the boot, and and a lot of young coaches struggling. Maybe with the the only exception being Brad Stevens over the past couple of years, uh, who have found early success. And I think it, it goes to two points. One, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding in the NBA of what make what makes a successful NBA coach. And I, I, think, I think the second point is, and again, this goes back to what can you control as a head coach? You, you, sometimes you can't control the attitude of the guys that are brought into the organization, unless you're Doc and you're GM and head coach. But if you're just a head coach, you know, a lot of it falls on, is the organization committed to bringing in talent, but talent with the right attitude and and. I read a uh, an interview, an interesting interview with Brad Stevens on Bleacher Report, and he talked about how before he accepted that Celtics job, he interviewed them. He did a lot of research about what this organization was about, and and I think again, I think that goes to this point that to be a successful head coach, you have to have players that want to get better because you can't make these guys. It, this isn't. Co- I think in college and in high school, you can. There's there are consequences to not performing at the highest level. You're not going to make the NBA. You're not going to make the big bucks. But so many of these guys have already made the big bucks. There's no bigger, you know, for, there, there are levels of, there's, there's max contracts and so on and so forth, but they've reached the highest highs. And so at that point, it, it comes down to who are you as an individual? Do you want to make your game better and, and, and be, you know, one of the top five guys at your position? And so I think luckily, 
for Clifford and for Hornets fans, they've not only been able to assemble better shooting talent, but they've been able to assemble talent that seems to want to get better. And and yeah. I think any success that the Hornets have had this season has been just as much about that as it has been, you know, finally getting healthy or shooting more threes. But you got I mean you guys you have guys like Lamb, Lynn, uh, Frank Kaminsky, all all these guys, Nick Batum with attitudes, Kimball Walker especially, attitudes of I wanna get better, I wanna prove myself, I wanna show what I can do. And that's important. Very important. You have you have to have those guys because if if you don't have them, one you're not going to win and you're not going to get better. Like they always say, um, you know, the, the players are bigger than the coach, and, and you just alluded to that because guys guys get if they aren't winning early, guys get canned, and it's a it's a very ugly situation because it's hard. It is really hard to to yell at a at a grown man who's making ten, eleven million dollars a year. They can be like, what? I'm not. I don't have to take this. You can do that in high school, just like you said, because guys are hungry. But once once you start once you start getting these checks, guys start you know you get that sense of entitlement, and half of them have had it since AAU. But when they get money in their pocket, it's you know there's nothing you can do. And the good thing about Clifford is is he's aware. He he understands these things, and I think all of those all of that that back history of him learning from other guys. Well, his his, his dad his dad was his high school coach, uh, and he when he was in college he was studying to be uh, a teacher, a special education teacher. So he he's always wanted to coach. He's always wanted to teach. Again, I'm spoiling. I don't know. Go go listen to the interview. I'm, I'm not going to talk about the interview anymore because it was so good. Yeah, you know, it was so deep. Go. go go check that out again. Chris Mannix, the Vertical Podcast. Steve Clifford, very candid. He's always that's that's the one thing you you, you have to love. Even if you don't like his decisions or his style or his philosophy, it, you have to respect the man's candor because he's open. He talks about himself and he and he talks about uh, the game of basketball in a way that a lot of other co- coaches do not. Okay. Uh, Adi Joseph, our friend and uh, NBA editor for Sporting News, joined the Pulse with Chris Allison and Bobby Rosinski on Wednesday before the Cavs game, basically taking stock of the Hornets' season to date, the state of the Hornets, and where they can go in the future. Let's take a listen to that. One thing we're seeing is just tremendous play right now from Kemba Walker. 26 games where he scored more than 20 points. Bobby mentioned earlier he's averaging uh, 24 points per game. What was that since? Christmas. Uh, since Christmas. And uh, which has him, I think that's second in the East. Uh, so your thoughts on Kemba, his development, and, and what sparked it? You know, I, it, it's simply in large part due to their teammates. Um, above all else, he finally has offensive-minded teammates who are actually good. And uh, he's needed that since he got to the NBA, and he has not had it. And you can just see sort of a weight being lifted from his shoulders in terms of, how he's functioning, how he's thinking about basketball, which is he's no longer feeling like he needs to play like he did at UConn, which was to carry the team, to, to run every single play for himself. And having Nick Batum in particular has just taken that off him and, and, and allowed him to be his natural player, which I think is one of the better scoring point guards in the league, in a league full of really good scoring point guards. But the other thing is, you know, his initial run of really strong play came when the team was losing. The fact that he's been able to continue it while the team's winning is a really positive sign. Uh, your thoughts on the addition of Courtney Lee to this thing at the trade deadline? Yeah, he, Courtney Lee's 
pretty much exactly what they were were ideally going to get. Guy who he's going to be a free agent, so he has a lot to play for. He can really shoot. He's familiar with Steve Clifford because of his time in Orlando, and he will be able to step in and be a, a significant upgrade on PJ Hairston, which is uh, an important thing coming down the stretch. The only negative is that he's not a lead defender, and that means that Nick Batum is going to have to be that lead defender against perimeter players, and that could potentially you know, wear down Nick a little more than they, they'd ideally like to because of his large role on offense. For you, what's the biggest reason uh, that we're seeing this team be successful? Right now, it's, it's the health. Um, it's, it's just really good to see this team come out of the all-star break. You know, Al Jefferson's return is underrated because he gives them a reliable backup big man and he, he's really a good fit off the bench. And I think having Nick Batum and Jeremy Lin both actually healthy again for the first time since really that's good first month, that good November, uh, is, is a big help too. You, you just see that this team has a lot of, maybe they don't have a, anyone in the stars here. You know, they didn't have an all-star and Kemba is trying to prove that he's a top 30 player in the NBA, but I'm not sure he is. Right now, they have a lot of guys in that range between like number 30 and number 100. They have a lot of guys in that range, more than most teams. And so their depth has become a really big strong suit. And that's what I think they were hoping for after a strong offseason. What's the ceiling in the East for Charlotte? And have you raised your expectations for them once they get to the playoffs? Do you see them winning a playoff series? So much of the, the latter question depends on the former question. And that's, that's the fun part about the East right now is basically, like I said, the Raptors have actually built themselves a nice cushion. So we can probably pencil in the Cavs as one seed and the Raptors as a two seed. Everything after that is just a mess. And the Hornets have a position here where if they can keep playing the way they are, they could shoot themselves up to having home court advantage for the first round, which, you know, I remember back in October when Michael Kidd-Gilchrist first had his shoulder injury, we were talking, oh, man, how bad is this team going to be? So this is a really incredible turn of fate, and uh, they have the opportunity now to build on everything that's going right. I think the best the best way I can say it is, there are certain teams that if I am, if I, if I'm looking at it from a strategy standpoint, I probably don't want to face the Miami Heat in the first round. They have a ton of experience. And if Chris Bosch is ruled able to return for this season, that could be a really good team entering the playoffs. I probably don't want to face the Atlanta Hawks because they proved last season capable of winning a playoff series or two. But if I could get, the Celtics or a team similar to that that isn't as experienced in the playoffs, the Blazers have a nice set of veterans, and I think they they can definitely win a playoff series. All right, interesting stuff from Adi Joseph, NBA editor and writer for Sporting News at Adi Joseph on Twitter. Adi, we'll talk again next week. Thank you. Again, that was from The Pulse with Chris Allison and Bobby Rosinski on ESPN 730 AM. You can also go to ESPN730.com to uh, listen to live shows and podcasts. So, Justin, a lot of interesting stuff in there, some playoff strategery. Which team you know, do you want to face? Do you want to face the more experienced teams 
or you know, is it all just matchup based? And I think it's interesting. And we just have to, you know, it's one of those things that you love to speculate on now. But as Adi pointed out, with the Bosch situation, you just don't know what kind of Miami team is going to be there. And with Chicago, Rose is out every other night, and they've got the Jimmy Butler injury. So it's like, what are these teams going to look like uh, come late April uh, compared to what they look like now? You know, um, I actually do get granted if they can stay barring injury and they make the playoffs. Um, I actually would give them a shot against anybody outside of uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, but Boston, I think I think he got. I, I, you know, I know he. I just think Boston is a bad matchup for the Hornets, and they've definitely proven it twice yeah. already. Uh, just something about that combo of Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley and the quickness and the defense that Bradley provides to the, the two-guard position and, and uh, Isaiah's uh, dynamic ability to, to move in and out of the lane, I just think creates so much disruption. That's terrible. So, I, that. yeah, I just think uh, I hate to disagree with my friend Adi Joseph, but I think you want to avoid. I like the Toronto matchup for some reason. I've, I've seen the Hornets yeah. do good things against Toronto. I've seen them play well against Miami, even with uh, Chris Bosh. So I think there are some favorable matchups. I, I just think you definitely want to avoid Cleveland. You definitely want to avoid Boston. So that probably means you need to fall somewhere 6-5. And I think that's realistic for the Hornets. I, I do. They're they're a game out of uh, out of six, um, and I definitely think they they could get there. Just six, seven, six or seven. They can't be eight, as long as they can avoid eight. And you never like if Bosch say Bosch doesn't play for the rest of the year. Miami's not going to hold that for a slide if Bosch doesn't play. So then, say you creep up, say you just get anywhere if something happens and you can match up with with Miami. Like, I, I don't think you're too concerned about that without Bosch, even though White Todd and Wade are good basketball players. But, you know, playing Toronto, I don't think that like that's a mountain that they couldn't climb. Now, Toronto is a better team, but I definitely would give them a shot against Toronto. If they don't win it, I definitely think they can make it interesting. Well, listen, sure. the, the Batum-DeRozan matchup, would be if if that ends up being you know the the defensive assignment and it's been interesting you know with the addition of Courtney Lee Courtney Lee's played some good defense in a limited amount of minutes but I don't think Courtney Lee's a guy that you can depend on to guard you know the best wing I think that's going to have to fall more and more on Nicholas Batum as we continue through the second half of the of the season so we'll we'll, we'll kind of keep an eye on that uh, let's let's move on to our next topic, and that is uh, some new uh, enhancements to Time Warner Cable Arena, including a, a brand new Jumbotron scoreboard, a $7 million scoreboard. Uh, the Hornets released some renderings, some pictures of this new scoreboard. First of all, your thoughts, Justin, on, on this. Um, it's a, going to be the largest, one of the largest screens, 180% larger uh, in the end zone displays and 50% larger than the uh, current center hung scoreboard display. And we've seen the the shot of the, the comparison between the two. And it's just, it's crazy how big this thing is going to be. And it has screens underneath uh, for, for people sitting in the, in the lower levels uh, because this thing is so uh, big. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this new scoreboard for the Hornets and Time Warner Cable? You know, I am going to miss the scoreboard they have now just because they have the Skyland 
the skyline at the top. I thought that was very, very creative. But it's I cool, really, but I, it's kind I, of. I think it's kind of. I don't know, kind of kitschy now. I just it doesn't. It's like it's neat, it. but it's outdated already. I don't think yeah, it even has the Duke Energy Building because it was built what back in 05. Yeah, that, you know what? That is a valid point. I, I, I you can't keep updating that, that thing. Time. That that would cost too much because Charlotte it, it buildings would. are popping up all over the place here in Uptown. So you all can't you know you can't keep updating that thing. And what what I like about it is as you have the team you know progressing and, and getting better. You know, you have to make upgrades to the arena. We we all know if, if you pay good money to go to a basketball game, um, you want to be in the presentation. You want to have a good presentation. You want to be entertained. You want to enjoy being there in person. And it's phenomenal. It's it's huge. It's it's full of color. Um, the screens at, at the bottom of it, I, I think, is probably the, the most clever of, of everything they have to it. Um, I would definitely give um, Charlotte a round of applause for that. It, it is definitely a significant upgrade. It's, it's going to be super nice. Yeah, and the the scoreboard is the not the only upgrade coming to Time Warner Cable Arena. A two new 360 degree uh, LED ribbon displays will be installed, as well as four auxiliary boards that will be visible. Uh, from the upper level. And we got a picture, and we posted this on Twitter uh, this morning. So hopefully our wonderful social media coordinator can dig that tweet up and and, and get that picture back up to the top of the the, uh, Twitter feed. But uh, someone pointed this out on the Hornets Reddit, uh, a user by the name of Compromised Identity. But one of the renderings for, for one of these upper level aux boards had a... And I put this in the in the rundown. Justin had a, a fictional lineup or a fictional box score in the screen, and again, this was just a, sort of a drawing, a rendering to show what these things would look like. But this box score is, is pretty hilarious. Uh, uh, included, you have Troy Daniels playing center. Uh, the, the the starting lineup was Nick Batum, Bismack Biombo still plays for the Hornets in this in this rendering. Oh, Bismack. Troy Daniels playing center, PJ Harrison starting at guard, and then oh check this out at guard Spencer Hawes spelled H A W S. But uh, that's not even the most insane thing about this. First of all, Kimball Walker out with uh, right thumb surgery, so this is a dark. This is the darkest timeline. <laughs> this rendering, but the minutes are the hilarious part to me, Justin. You've got uh, like four guys playing forty minutes, three guys playing thirty-five minutes. The minutes. This was, I think this game took three solid days to play. <laughs> yes, it, it took for, forever. Uh, but hey, I, only, guess, I guess somebody was just having fun. Well, listen, only two three-pointers attempted in this game, uh, so that's tough. That that This was not an enjoyable game to watch. Uh, uh, Bismack Biombo though, led, or no, he didn't lead all scores. That was the center, Troy Daniels, with 21. 19 points for Bismack Biombo though, on... Uh, 7 of 17 shooting. So Biz, in this alternate Hornets universe, is is doing well for himself. And I, I think hey, that's that's admirable. I'm glad that... Wouldn't that have been nice if he would have been able to score that many points when he was here? Well, listen, ni- yeah, 19 and 8. Th- those would have been, I think, four assists as well. So the, the man was doing work at the power forward position uh, and and really really help, helping to anchor that back or the front court that included again Troy Daniels at center, good stuff. Anyway, so once you see the picture, uh, let us know what's the most. Are we missing anything? The most insane thing. Uh, Jeff Taylor still on the team. Uh, Max Seal, Brian Roberts, 
Frank Kaminsky rounding out and Lamb, who's wearing 99, rounding out the bench in this alternate, this darkest of timelines. <laughs> oh, well. Hey, at least the Hornets are 12 and 12 in that one. They're, they're, they're hanging around 500. So that's good. But thanks for pointing that out there. Hornets Reddit. I, I, I love the Charlotte Hornets Reddit. I, I go there to, to see what's, what's trending amongst the fans and, and I pick up some of these neat things for the show. So good stuff there. All right, eight minutes left in this hour. Let's talk about the next game coming up. Charlotte at Indiana, a chance to rebound against the Pacers. In the last matchup, Justin, it was another recent rematch. The Hornets put a beat down on the Pacers in their building right before the All-Star break. The Hornets won that game 117-95. to After that game, Pacers head coach Frank Vogel said, frankly, they aren't a good matchup for us. That's good news. And they played with more energy than us. Uh, and, and I have to agree with uh, Coach Vogel here. I'll take his word for it. Frank, uh, Spencer, and Cody, I think, did a great job of pulling their bigs out. They they play, and we talked about this before the game, uh, before that last game. We talked about how they run a traditional two-big lineup with, with Miles Turner, who can hit threes but certainly not known for it, and Ian Mahinmi. So you can expose that if your bigs are willing to pull those bigs out, give Kemba and Lynn space to drive. That could be another key to this game. Uh, Injury report, Rodney Stuckey will be out, right foot sprain and a bone bruise. C.J. Miles also questionable, strained left calf. Of course, MKG out after that right knee surgery and, and, or excuse me, right shoulder surgery. And, And that was the game. The game that he got injured was the the last matchup against uh, the Pacers. Spencer Halls also ruled out still with a sore lower back. So what do you see in this Pacers matchup, Justin? Keys for the Hornets to rebound and get back on the winning side of the track. When they, when they beat them, um, one thing I noticed was in the first quarter, their energy on the defensive end was, was, was really high. They had active hands in the passing lane. They, they were really getting after. They, they played a good game, and and usually, if if you talk to Clifford to ask him, he's always going to say, for his team to be successful, he's going to have to start the defensive end. Mm-hmm. And knowing, you know, the success they had, that gives you a certain level of confidence, and they're going to have to come out. And one, I think, outside of, you know, just the effort on the defensive end, is they're going to have to take care of the ball. They're going to have to take care of the ball. And that has been a problem over, I would say, maybe the last month or so. They've been getting a little careless with the ball at times. But they're going to have to defend as they always, well, let me not say always do, but they do for the most part. Um, they're going to have to take care of the ball, and they got a really good bench play that game. Kaminsky had 10 points. Jeremy Lin had 14. Jeremy Lin had 16. So you're going to have to, if you can get a similar effort for those guys with the enhancement of Al Jefferson, I feel like this should be a win. But you can never pencil in when you get because you always got to go out there and play. Well, listen, if you're the Hornets, you can't expect to have the same kind of success as you did in the last game because Frank Vogel is a very smart coach and they've got a lot of talent on that team. And so I think they're going to to want to come out and, and again, it's in their house again. So they want to show that they can beat this team. And, you know, these are two teams that will be tussling for playoff position. So this is a very important game for both teams. I'm watching on the Pacers side of the ball. I'm watching Monta Ellis because, you know, I think he didn't, he had a little bit of a quiet game last time. And I think, you know, with his quickness, he wasn't as, as aggressive as he could have been. And I think with his quickness against Courtney Lee and Nick or Nick Batum, 
I think you, you, you have to watch that as, as a possible place for the Pacers to take advantage of the Hornets. And they're going to have to take advantage of opportunities that the Pacers offense gives with turnovers and also on defense. They gave up 105 points in their last victory against the New York Knicks. So there are opportunities to attack this defense, and the Hornets will have to do it once again. I don't know if they'll match 117 points, Justin, but they'll certainly give it the old college try. That'll do it for us Hornets fans. Thanks so much to our friends at ESPN 730. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Hive Talk Live for live game updates and more. Listen to ESPN 730 AM anytime, anywhere at ESPN730.com. Go to atthehive.com for all the latest news and analysis on your Charlotte Hornets. For Justin, I'm Doug saying stay bought in, stay believing. All hail the teal and purple.